0: This is episode 106 of the Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, A Scientist's Perspective on Face Masks. This episode is part of our daily or near-daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am so honored to welcome a scientist back to the show, and this one is very near and dear to my heart because my sister is here, Jill Crittenden. She has been a research scientist at MIT since year 2000. She's trained in molecular genetics and neuroscience, and is conducting research to understand how the brain motivates motivates action. She uses transgenic animals and viruses to directly test how, for example models of Parkinson's disease lose the ability to motivate movements and how drugs of abuse over motivate movements. That's on more normal times. For the past three weeks, she's been on emergency vacation to help educate her community about how the use of sterile techniques, which she knows very well from her lab, can protect them from COVID-19. And today she's here to talk to us about masks She's the co-chair of the Cambridge City COVID-19 Expert Advisory Panel with uh, epidemiologists as well as heads of emergency preparedness for Cambridge hospitals and Mass General. She's been working to get face masks distributed to frontline service workers, such as cashiers and grocery stores, She's also been a central participant in the N95 decon and Mass General Brigham N95 reuse teams that are researching how to decontaminate N95 masks that would normally be discarded, but now need to be reused because there's in, they are in such short supply. So Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm really I'm proud that you're getting the word out about Um, The protectiveness of face masks, which our country has been late to come to, I really want everybody to know exactly how to protect themselves. And of course, one of the issues has been the shortage, right? But people should nevertheless be informed of the best methods. And that's what I'm so proud of you for helping
0: people to understand. Well, it's funny. I was just on the phone call with a Korean client of mine and she was saying, you know, mask, masks, masks. So it's very timely. The governor of California uh, just issued a recommendation that everyone who goes outside wear a mask and i believe that's also now a federal recommendation things are changing so fast every day it's it's different and you've been working on a number of initiatives to get masks and other protective gear to frontline workers and so what is your feeling about these recommendations that are coming from the government
1: Oh, that's absolutely important. And one way in which we know based on data that that's important is that the respiratory droplets that come from people's mouths, especially if they're talking or singing, which of course we're always doing in public talking or even breathing, coughing, um, those respiratory droplets, even the very small ones can contain virus. So viruses are really small, you know, much smaller than the width of a human hair. And those respiratory droplets are just like giants that can carry multiple viral particles within them. And those respiratory droplets have been found to go out as far as six feet, right? So that's the idea of staying six feet away from other people. But the problem is that data also show that they can stay up in the air for between 30 minutes and hours, depending on the conditions, how humid the air is. And so if you're waiting six feet Apart from somebody else in line, you're going to move into their breathing space in less than 30 minutes. And then you're going to be breathing in those respiratory droplets that some people might have viruses in without even realizing it, because often people are shedding the virus when they don't even feel symptomatic. Boston has now um, issued an order that people need to, everyone needs to wear face masks in public. And of course, this is true in other Western countries as well. So I'm happy to hear that that's happening in California. And the faster it happens everywhere, the safer people will be.
0: When the governor made that announcement, he was very careful to keep reiterating that wearing a mask shouldn't give you a false sense of security and that we still have to keep physical distancing up as well. And do you have any worries about people getting a false sense of security?
1: I think that the most important thing is to educate people, right? It's really hard to talk to somebody from six feet away. That's just not, I think, a reasonable expectation. And like I said, we obviously aren't going to wait 30 minutes to move six feet ahead in line. So people just need to wear masks. The idea that they're going to have a false sense of security, I guess in some cases, for example, people who were planning to completely self-isolate might go out, but I think the it, definitely the benefits outweigh the risks of those few people who were really going to take every single precaution and now are going to venture out to the grocery store instead of having food delivered, for example. I think educating people about masks it will have much, much more benefit than the few people that might um, engage in somewhat riskier behavior because they have a mask on.
0: Yeah, it certainly makes sense. So let's talk about grocery stores. I have to admit that I was a little bit surprised as I was going around doing my shopping that I wasn't seeing cashiers wear masks because you know they're right across the counter from you interacting with person after person after person. And so you've had quite a lot of experience now talking to grocery store managers about masks. Can you tell us like, why people weren't wearing masks? Yeah. So tell us what your observations and experiences have been.
1: So it was actually quite disheartening to me. So the um, physicians have actually tried to figure out who were, who's at the most risk of getting COVID-19 and transmitting COVID-19. And so they classify the, here in Cambridge, they classify the um, healthcare workers at the highest risk. And that makes sense, right? Because they're seeing people who are Actually, you know, symptomatic COVID 19 guaranteed carriers. Mm -hmm. And those people are classified as high risk three. But they classify food handlers and cashiers as level two, three. So almost as high as a higher risk. And these guys, you know, they're forced to work fewer than six feet from probably hundreds of customers per day. And they have no way of knowing which of those customers are taking precautions. Certainly, at the rate at which it's transmitting currently in my community, it's almost guaranteed that they've been exposed to somebody who is COVID 19 positive. And of course, they're often talking to those people, asking, you know, cash or credit, those kinds of questions. And so they're really at extremely high risk. There were a couple of things that I ran into very early on in my community. I became active because I realized that. I just saw the risky behaviors that people were engaged in that I understood from physicians and being a biologist myself, that people just weren't aware of the risks that they were taking because nobody seemed sick around, right? But people can transmit this virus when they're not sick. Um, And the evidence was that it was transmitting very quickly in our community. Um, And so I just started a grassroots volunteers to deliver to, in particular, cashiers and food stores. Information about how to protect their customers and their workers. And some of the grocery stores were very receptive and they were very grateful because they said that they had, you know, years of experience in general food safety, but they didn't have the specific guidelines for a respiratory transmitted virus and how to protect people. And so I'll say that a lot of the grocery stores, just from the customers, were were very receptive. But on the other hand, some were not at all. And they they feared that if people saw their cashiers wearing masks, that the people would assume that they were sick.
0: Oh, and I that see.
1: stems from the CDC recommendation. So the CDC had said that people who were well should not wear a mask. Only people that were ill should wear a mask. And so that led to the false belief, I think, in our community that wearing a mask meant that you were sick. Mm. And obviously you wouldn't want to go to a store where sick people are working, right? And so that led to kind of a conundrum. Mm -hmm. And I also realized that the negative impact that that CDC statement, which is not data-backed and may have been a misled attempt to protect healthcare workers who needed the masks, right? So, So one way to make sure that there's a supply for one group is to tell the other group that they don't need them or shouldn't use them. Um, and so maybe it was a misguided attempt at that. I'm not sure why the CDC didn't use uh, data-based evidence for the recommendations. But as we know, it is now, their recommendations have now changed. But at the time that I started this grassroots effort, I also engaged the city, which was really thanks to the president of MIT who backed me because it was just little old me. And once the president of MIT stepped in and said, actually, little Joe Crittenden has something really important to say, please listen, the city did. So I helped them draft guidelines to actually be an official recommendation for how food stores can protect their workers and customers against COVID-19. And my first idea was that the people distributing these guidelines should be wearing masks for two reasons. One, to protect themselves. And two, just to serve as a good example of how people should behave, because masks were kind of considered an abnormal behavior in our in our society, and so I wanted to, you know, start spreading that as something that well people do, so people would understand this is not a weird thing, right? The more and more people are doing it, but the city was very resistant. And I couldn't understand why until finally they said, well, the federal guidelines don't support that. And so if we say that, we're going to be going against federal guidelines. And so I think the CDC changing has just had a major impact, both in terms of public health, um, supporting mask use, and also in my N95 decontamination and reuse work uh, with groups of scientists and Many universities and companies around the country who are trying to assist healthcare providers in determining safe ways to reuse these scarce N95 um, surgical masks because the CDC had also said that those could not be decontaminated and reused safely. And just last week, they also issued recommendations for how to do that. And so the CDC has a major impact on our society, both at the public health level and at the hospital executives level in educating healthcare providers in in how to safely protect themselves in this time of PPE scarcity.
0: You You actually led an initiative to raise money from the community to purchase masks for grocery store workers. So I just want to make sure my listeners get this. So you started a GoFundMe campaign so that people who are using the stores uh, would feel as though they had provided protection for the grocery store cashiers. I just want that to sink in because this means that the community was actually stepping forward to provide safety equipment that the employers were not providing to their own employees. So tell us how that has worked or not. Right. That,
1: that came to me because I realized that, that some managers, not all of them, some managers were resistant to the idea of their cashiers wearing masks because they thought people are not going to want to shop here because they think we've got sick cashiers. And so I um, just rallied you know, the few people in my community. We have a very powerful um, group of parents here in Cambridge and Facebook and so forth, and asked people to donate money so that I could purchase masks on my own just through eBay and then volunteers could give them to the store managers and say this is actually a gift from your customers because they want all of your cashiers to be wearing masks and so I thought that then the the managers would be motivated because they would they would think oh our customers actually want to see this and paid for this right they want to see their gift in use that's going to protect our workers and going to protect the customers and I raised in a very short period. But right after I started it, there was an announcement that actually this type of mask, which my physician friends had said nobody used in the hospitals at that point, because they're not 100% or 95% effective. So nobody was using them because everybody could afford these much more effective N95 masks. But with the shortage of the N95s, the hospital decided they were going to have to resort to this lesser standard one um, that was normally used by people in clinics or delis or something like that. And so then I was in another conundrum, right? Not only had it been discouraged by the Surgeon General and the CDC, and it was societally questionable, um, you know, whether you were sick or not wearing one of these masks. But now in addition, if you were wearing a mask, you were seen as taking it away from somebody in the hospital. And so I stopped the campaign at that point and had people deliver the mask both to grocery store workers, some health care providers, some first responders. So, kind of distributed the masks, including to grocery store workers. That's how I got involved in the N95 shortage, which, to tell you the truth, I never, ever would have thought that I could be useful in helping physicians in a hospital. I'm a basic researcher. I thought, you know, I can step up for the frontline service people, for the cashiers, because really they they need people to protect them. But the idea that physicians in, you know, the Mass General Hospital needed somebody to protect them of my, you know, non professional stature was shocking to me. And it turns out that I've had physicians send me letters telling me that I saved lives. And that's a sign of how weak our infrastructure is. And, it, and while it might be heartening, right, it makes me feel great to feel like physicians say that my work has been very important. It's also very disappointing to think that there's not a better infrastructure pr- to protect these people who are so critical in our war against COVID-19. I mean, it's a war that we should all be united against. And really, the physicians and the other healthcare providers must be kept as healthy as possible and as effective as possible to treat people and to educate people about how to fight this war so that is a very strange way in which I got involved in these groups of scientists that are just amazing they're all across the united states we're working together having zoom calls every single day with physicians physicians that you know they come on the zoom they're in their cars for half the Zoom, they're getting gowned up for half the Zoom, and some of them are running in on their breaks, you know, with their masks on. So it's it's really an amazing community to be part of that I I uh, unfortunately thought that I could never help with, um, and wish that that were the case, but I'm doing what I can. Uh, so. I would say that there have been major improvements, both both at the societal level of understanding basic masks that can help people, and also at the medical level of understanding how to more safely reuse the the limited N95s.
0: Okay, let's talk about how the listeners can protect themselves. Um, So tell us what your recommendations would be for how a person could use a mask today.
1: So to me, the easiest thing to do is just to use a ready-made mask. So there are a lot of them for sale. Um, The issue is that the supply of them varies. And so it's true that the hospitals are short of these masks. And so one doesn't want to limit their supply. But what also is true is that there's an almost unlimited supply, as I understand it, of this basic kind, not of the N95 kind that physicians need to perform work very closely with with severely ill COVID-19 patients, but just what the general public uses. There is a massive supply of these in China, and they're hard to access for many people. And the reason that they're hard to access is not quite clear but there are ways to access them. And um, I have found in my local Chinese community ways to access them. And so I think that is what I'm trying to source for people here. So I've gotten, for example, there are 5,000 of these masks in our community right now that I'm having people generating invoices to get people connected to them. And so I think that easiest thing is to get one of these masks. And the reason that that those are the best is because data show that they filter between 50 and 90% of the respiratory droplets depending on how you use them. There's particular guidelines to test whether they are good masks. So if you cut one open, you should see three layers. The inner layer should be kind of white and fuzzy and all of the layers if you try to light them on fire with a with a lighter they should melt immediately. None of them should smoke. None of them should catch fire. And these three layers have particular properties. So the middle one actually has electrostatic properties. So it's called melt-blown polypropylene. And it can actually trap viruses that are much smaller than the pore size of the uh, material. And the reason that's important is because you want to be able to breathe through the mask, right? And so if you have a big pore size, then you can breathe pretty easily through it. But if it also has these electrostatic properties, it can capture the respiratory droplets that have what's called a temporary dipole. My dad, a physicist, Jeff's dad, and also a, a Nobel Prize winning physicist who was one of, on one of these N95 decontamination teams, understand the physics of why respiratory droplets or water droplets can have a temporary charge. But that charge is enough to be caught up in these electrostatic middle fibers So super cool. You can take advantage of that by buying a mask that already has this in it. The other good thing about those masks is if you put a water droplet on the outside of them, then you'll see that it beads up. So first of all, it doesn't like to attract respiratory droplets. And second of all, if they get in there, they can't get through. So those are really easy. That's what I would go for. But you can also do do do-it-yourself. And there are some do-it-yourself ones that um, adhere to these scientific principles. So for example, people have measured how easily do respiratory droplets go through different materials. And one thing that's pretty good at trapping them are amorphous materials, so materials that aren't woven. So if you think of woven cloth that's woven threads, then it's like a sieve, right? They're crisscrosses and they have regular holes through them and those holes are big enough that... Small respiratory droplets can go right through them. And so ideally, one uses a material that's called amorphous bonded. And um, that means it's not woven. So it's not like a sieve. And the holes are much smaller and more tortuous. So examples of that are paper towel or also these filters that people use to um, clean their cars, I guess. So there's one called Zep. Um, that's just like a, you pull it out of a canister. It's a disposable thing. So one of the ideal masks to, for do-it-yourself is just to use like a t-shirt or some kind of simple woven material. And then you can have that as the sort of scaffold to your mask with a pocket in it where you can put in every time you wear it, a paper towel or one of these disposable um, shop towels. And that way you've got a nice scaffold that's washable and a disposable extra good filter that you can breathe through. And so there are some nice online videos about how to, how to make masks like that. Then you can just wear that mask out. Then you can wash the scaffold and replace the filter in between that has these amorphous properties. And one thing to remember about those masks is if, if you wear them out, right, and you're talking to people, Um, or stepping into other people's um, respiratory space, like waiting in line, the outside of the mask might get some COVID virus on it. So what you really want to do is make sure that you don't get the outside of the mask to touch your nose, which is or your mouth, which is where the virus gets in. So when you take off the mask when you get home, you want to be really careful about how you take it off. Doffing it is what I've learned the doctors call that, taking it off. And you should put it directly in the wash after throwing away the paper towel inside or directly into a closed hamper, and then wash your hands because they've touched potentially the virus that's on the outside and ideally wash your face too especially around your nose. so I think there are great do it yourself uh methods out there, so that's good news. Everybody's capable of of wearing a mask, including one that doesn't look like like you know a surgical mask that might make them feel. Um, more strange, but something that looks more like a bandana. It's important to point out that bandanas aren't ideal. So it's worth taking the extra effort of making one out of t-shirt where you have a have a paper towel that you can change in and out every time.
0: And how about if you have a mask that you've that you have gotten, um, but it's not washable? Is there any way to reuse that? Can you let it sit around for a while or what can you do?
1: So that's a big debate, both in the medical community and in the public community. So unfortunately, once again, I think the CDC put out a recommendation that with the N95s that you could wait overnight and then use it again. And while this is convenient for people when they're in their off eight-hour shift, all of the scientists agree that this is not a data-backed recommendation, That's why we were so grateful that the CDC put out recommendations for effective ways to decontaminate the masks with methods like um, hydrogen peroxide and other complicated systems that can be employed in hospitals. But for home use, if you have one of these surgical masks, for example, typically we're not exposed to people the way the physicians are that are coughing on us and have a lot of viral shed, right? So we don't expect when we go to the store to have a massive amount of virus deposited on our mask. We might have enough to be concerned about, but nothing like what the physicians have to worry about. Mm -hmm. So I think it's reasonable to take a conservative approach, but I must say that it is not yet backed by data. The data should be out any day now from the NIH about how long the virus can live on these masks. But the important point is that, okay, let's say that it's found that it can live for five days. It can live for five days on the mask. Well, if somebody sang at you or coughed on you or spit on you, as might happen in the hospital and was um, severely symptomatic with COVID-19, if 10% of the virus is alive after five days, that could be serious. But if you just stepped into somebody's airspace who seemed perfectly well, that maybe was shedding a little bit of virus, you might not have very many viral particles. So if only 10% of them are left, it doesn't really matter because there were hardly any to begin with. So I think we can be more lenient uh, just for home use. What I do in my house is I just have seven of these surgical masks, the basic medical masks, I mean, the kind that are blue and white. And then I have each one labeled Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. This was also based on advice that I received from a Korean friend and a Chinese friend of kind of practices used there where they have very successfully protected people from the pandemic. And so I wear one on Monday, and then I just put that to be self-isolated, not touch anything else, and wear a different one on Tuesday and so on with the idea that after seven days... It's very unlikely that the few viral particles that I probably got on the outside when I was um, at the grocery store would still be alive.
0: I've been hearing all kinds of wacky ideas, so I want you to do a little myth-busting for us here. So how about some things like, I saw somewhere somebody said, oh, you can just put your mask in a bag. Uh, How do you feel about that?
1: That is what our healthcare providers have been told to do with their N95 masks. It makes absolutely no sense to me. And it makes no sense to the scientists who've heard this. It also makes no sense to my um, now close friend who's a a physician in Kirkland, Washington. So sort of at the epicenter of this, where she thinks that almost all of her coworkers are now COVID-19 positive because they all have persistent coughs. That is what they were told to do. And one thing that's really wrong with that in the hospital is that they have these masks that have elastic bands that go around the outside. And those bands are generally not protected. So a lot of people in the healthcare environment, they have the N95 masks. And then on top of that, they wear a face shield. Mm-hmm. And so that at least prevents some of the virus from people who are, who are shedding virus from getting onto the mask itself. But they have these elastic bands that go around their heads that aren't protected. And so those are getting exposed to a lot of the virus. And when people take the masks off, even if they do it really carefully, they put it in a bag and those elastic bands fall into the middle part of the mask where their noses are touching. Oh, And so this is a very upsetting practice to tell people to put them into a bag. A much safer practice and one that's being recommended to people in, in low resource places like Africa and Brazil that are sunny is to put your mask out in the sun because there's absolutely no question that UV light decontaminates the mask. Hmm. And so probably the best suggestion is to set it out in the sun for a few days and try to expose both the front and the back to sunlight. And of course, bags don't do that either. So putting it in a paper bag is not a good practice.
0: You had talked before about there's kind of a social stigma about wearing a mask. Do you have any suggestions for us about how we overcome that? Well,
1: what I've read from things that people have sent to me about this, I haven't done a lot of research myself, but in Asia, apparently, they also had to overcome social stigma in different countries at different times. And their claim was that a big difference maker was advertising and the government. So the government just saying you had to do it. So I mean, for one thing, if the government says that, then at least more people are going to do it so that you don't think, oh, that person's wearing a mask because they're sick and they shouldn't even be out. You think that person's wearing a mask because they're obeying the law. And so that immediately changes, I think, people's perception of what it means to see someone wearing a mask, but also just having people advertise it on TV as something people do to protect their community because they care about their community. And so in Asia now, it's completely switched, right? So that If people are not wearing a mask in public, they're seen as being disrespectful to their neighbors um, and irresponsible. So I think there are several ways to immediately affect that by um, what your governor has done, the Boston mayor has done, um, what's happened in Czechoslovakia, parts of Germany, just having government decree, you have to wear a mask when you're out. And then as much as possible, have people do it just to support it as a normative thing.
0: I know I have to let you go, but Jill, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And I'll include any information that you want in the show notes. But is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before I let you go?
1: Yeah, I would just like to point out that I was so surprised to find out what a difference I could make by being active. And many people, I think, feel that they need to wait for somebody to tell them what to do And I think it's important to realize that a lot of people that are in the position of doing something, like the mayor of Cambridge, for example, they are overwhelmed with emergencies on many fronts at this point. And the more that you can do on your own to support them, the better. Waiting for them to help you is is waiting in a very long line at this point. So, So try to take action yourself and motivate other people to take action, because there are many things we can do to protect the vulnerable people in our community.
0: Thank you again.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff. It's great to be in touch.
0: That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D I S C R E E T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.